in God's word and one that really cannot be denied. That God chooses over and over again to use sinful, broken humanity to accomplish his greatest purposes. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that really shouldn't surprise you. Because the pages of scripture are replete with such instances. We think of David. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. But David fell prey to the sin of adultery and he had a man murdered in the process. We think of Paul, the apostle of Christ, the one who wrote over a third of our New Testament, probably the most prominent figure in the entirety of the early church. But Paul didn't start out that way, did he? Because before Paul, there was Saul, persecutor of the early church, a violent, wicked, religious zealot. Time fails to tell us this morning of a harlot named Rahab, who can be found at the beginning of your New Testament within the very line of Jesus Christ himself. A schemer and a deceiver named Jacob, who fathered a nation that to this very day is the apple of of God's own eye. An angry murderer named Moses who led that very same nation out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery. A fearful liar named Abraham who placed his life in a compromising situation not once, but twice, and was still dubbed the father of the faithful. On and on the list goes, And and yet in each of these cases, and so many more like them, God used these individuals in spite of, and actually after their brokenness, after their failures. And, And so it is with this backdrop in mind this morning that I want us to not only recognize our weakness, because we are all weak, but even more importantly, See our God in the face of those weaknesses. This morning we're going to be considering one of the foremost characters within our New Testament. He's a man named Peter. Peter was a disciple. He was one of Christ's inner circle even amongst the disciples, consisting of Peter, James, and John. And yet, as we will discover, Peter failed Christ miserably. But praise the Lord, we serve a God who doesn't just commission or call us. He recommissions and calls us back into his service, even after we fail him time and time again. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a beautiful recommissioning. But before we do so, let's pray, and then we'll read our text and get started. Dear Lord, I thank you for stories like the one we are turned to this morning that encourage our hearts that even in spite of our weakness and our failures, you have a plan for us and you desire to use us as part of your kingdom work. Pray that we would this morning get out of our own ways, that we would rely on the things that you have granted to us for life and godliness, that we would not try to do this whole Christian thing on our own, but that when we do fall, inevitably, 
we would get back up with your help and your strength and be recommissioned into a life of meaningful service for you. It's in your Son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. John 21, verse 15, says this. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He, speaking of Peter, saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou didst girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. When I first got to college, I was totally helpless as far as scheduling my time and life was concerned. On the first day of classes, perhaps you've been there, it's known as syllabus day, right? And I had no clue when I got all of those syllabus or syllabi, I don't know what's the correct pronunciation of the the plural there. I had no clue what was going on. I had no clue what was going on or how to make any sense of all of it. And it was completely overwhelming. But I'm thankful that I had a friend named Nate. And I had a brother as well named Caleb who came alongside of me and helped me to map out my entire semester and all of those daunting assignments early on. And just to take it a day at a time, because without those things and without those men, I would have been in big, big trouble trouble as time went on. I'm past college and grad school now. And you know what? Life still sometimes feels like syllabus day to me. It's overwhelming. And I don't always know how I'm going to make heads or tails of what's going on. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but... But maybe it's been an event or or a circumstance in your life that's popped up that was unexpected. Maybe it was perhaps a relationship that, that was broken. Maybe you honestly can't even pinpoint exactly why, but you just at times feel lost and helpless and like you can't control it. If that's you this morning, can I encourage you with the thought that you're not alone? You're not alone. God sees you, God loves you, and God wants to enable you. By the time we come to read of Peter here in John 21, he was a broken man. And it wasn't until he came to the end of himself, recognizing his brokenness in light of Christ's grace and forgiveness, that he became a restored and confident leader of the early church. Psalm 103.14 puts it this way, For he, speaking of God, knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. 
Our Creator God is intrinsically in tune this morning with the lives of each and every one of us. All of His creation. And just like my friend and my brother who came alongside of me on Syllabus Day so many years ago, He recognizes you in your moment of overwhelming weakness. And He lovingly chooses to come alongside of you and coach you in spite of those things back towards a life of meaningful service for Him. You know, wrong predictions can oftentimes be an extremely funny thing. I have actually with me that I brought a list of some of the the worst predictions of all time that I found online. Here's one. The problem with television is that the people must sit and keep their eyes glued on a screen. The average American family hasn't time for it. That was the New York Times in 1939. Uh, Another one from the New York Times, 2006. Everyone's always asking me when Apple will come out with a cell phone. My answer is probably never. I, I won't ask for a show of hands how many of you have an iPhone in your possession this morning, but I would imagine it's It's, um, if not the majority of you, a large number. If excessive smoking actually plays a role in the production of lung cancer, it seems to be a minor one. W.C. Huper, director of the National Cancer Institute in 1954. Yikes. Uh, The United Artists executive rejected an aspiring young actor named Ronald Reagan auditioning for the lead of a movie entitled The Best Man, claiming that he just didn't have that presidential look. (laughs) I think that's my favorite one. Everyone acquainted with the subject will recognize it as a conspicuous failure. This was Henry Morton, president of the Stevens Institute of Technology in 1880 on Thomas Edison's recent invention of the light bulb. Um, Today we are looking at a passage that comes on the heels of not just a prediction, it's a guarantee. And it's a guarantee that couldn't have gone worse. That is Peter's proclamation that though all else forsake thee, what did he say? Yet will I not. Matthew 26, in reference to Christ. And if you know the story, you know what happened 12 hours, not even 12 hours after that statement was made. Peter denied him how many times? Three times. In the passage we just read, how many times did Christ ask Peter, Peter, do you love me? Three times. When we come to this passage this morning, do you think the significance of that number is lost on Peter? No, I don't believe so. And so when we come to verses 15 through 19, I want you to understand that this portion of Scripture that we have just read is the first meaningful interaction that Christ has had with Peter since that failure. And he's feeling pretty down on himself at this point in his life. Perhaps you've you've been there before. I I know I have. If you're like me, you've, you've gone through times in your life, in your spiritual walk, where you felt like an objective failure. You've you've experienced seasons where, like Peter, you fell and you fell hard. And even though you asked for forgiveness and healing from that falling and that failing, 
And even though you know in your heart, because you're a Christian and you read your Bible, that God is faithful and and he promises to forgive those who ask him for that forgiveness each and every time. You just didn't feel like you were worthy to ever be used of by God again, or at least not right away. Can I suggest to you that, that when you or I are tempted to feel that way in our spiritual walk, Ultimately, I believe, according to this passage and others, we are adopting an incredibly small view of a loving and gracious God. It's not a view with any merit found within the basis of Scripture. And if left unchecked, it is, it is a viewpoint that can actually become incredibly paralyzing and keep us from a life of service for Christ. Our passage this morning is going to confront such a faulty perspective head on. Let's look at what it says together. As we discover this morning that man is weak and powerless on his own. Yet because your worthy God enables you, you can and you must love and live for him in spite of your flaws and failures. I'll say that again. Man is weak and powerless on his own. Yet because your worthy God enables you, you can and you must love and live for him in spite of your flaws and your failures. You must live for Christ first because he deserves your supreme devotion. Verse 15. Here in verse 15, we read the first of three nearly identical questions from Christ addressed to Peter about Peter's level of love and commitment towards him post-denial. And the nuance comes when Christ holds Peter's love up for him against all else and all others. Whether that be the disciples surrounding him, whether that be material things or distractions, Christ adds the phrase in verse 19 that we don't read in the other verses of more than these. I'm sorry, in verse 15. That's something that's not found in the question posed in verses 16 or 17. Christ and Peter both know again what is in play here. This is a reference to when Peter so vehemently assured his loyalty and commitment to Christ above all else prior to the crucifixion. And yet when push came to shove, Peter was anything but loyal. Luke 22.61 says that immediately upon Peter's third denial of Christ, prophecy turned reality and the Lord locked eyes and turned to him while hanging from the cross. And in that moment, Peter looked away and he wept bitterly. So when Christ asked Peter if he loves him more than anything or anyone else here, what leg does Peter have to stand on? I mean, he's already failed the test, right? In his first two replies here in our passage, Peter answers this question by pointing back to his long-founded relationship with Christ and their shared history together as the reason for why Christ ought to know the answer to such an absurd question, right? Lord, Lord, you know me. 
We lived together, we walked, we talked, we ate, we slept together for almost three years now. I left the family business. You know that I love you. Peter had failed Christ miserably. But I asked the question, was was three years of life and ministry over in just one instant? No. And listen carefully. Neither is yours when you choose to sin. Yes, sin is serious. And yes, sin has consequences. But we must be careful not to compound our sin by falling prey to the lie that we are no longer worthy to be used by God anymore for His glory after we sin. Satan would love nothing more than to sow those seeds of doubt within your mind. I'm looking at a room full of individuals this morning who God has used in spite of your flaws and your failures. I know that because God has used me in spite of my flaws and my failures. I am keenly aware of my shortcomings every time I stand in a pulpit such as this. And every time I stand and I minister to our teenagers. And yet somehow God in His sovereignty has chosen the broken, foolish things of this world like me and like you to confound the wise and the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. 1 Corinthians 1.27 Some believe that the feeding of lambs referenced here in verse 15 is referencing young believers and then even eventual believers. Those who are newly saved and those who need spiritual direction as well as those who have yet to even hear the message of the gospel altogether. Did you know that you don't have to be perfect in order to influence others for Christ? You don't. If the requirement for a life of service was that you or I had to come to a place where we ever felt worthy of such a position and calling, trust me, we would never get there. Why? Because while sanctification is immediate and complete, I'm sorry, salvation is immediate and complete, sanctification is different, right? It's progressive and it's continual. And also, it's nonlinear, right? It's it's like a, a chart that goes up and down and up and down, but always trending up. Think of it this way. Let's say that you struggle with a, a particular sin. You fill in the blank. It could be lying. It could be gossiping. It could be pride in its many forms, lust, laziness, whatever it is. Anything else that I haven't even mentioned here. And on average, let's say you commit whatever that sin is 20 times a week. And it bothers you, okay, because you're a saved individual. And it bothers you that you're sinning 20 times a week and you hate it. It's a stronghold in your life. So you give that particular sin to the Lord through prayer. And you look to God through his word. And you get godly counsel and you surround yourself with accountability as best you know how. And you're doing everything according to this book as best you know how. And then the next week rolls around. And you commit that exact same sin that you committed the week before 20 times. You commit it this week 12 times, 12 to 15 times a week. And then the following week, you commit it 8 to 10 times a week, right? 
And then the next week, two to four. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? You are not a failure because of your inability to quit a stronghold in your life called Turkey. In fact, I would argue that the person who struggles with that sin 20 times in a given week and then drops down to 15 the next and 12 the next and so on and so forth is objectively a success, not a failure. Why? Because what I am describing for you is just progressive sanctification. And and sadly, I think what has happened is that not this particular church, but the church as a whole, as an entity at large, has gotten this concept somehow twisted. And I don't know how or when that happened, but somewhere along the line, many have equated success with perfection and failure as anything less than that. And I want to be careful again to be very clear what I'm saying here this morning. I am not advocating taking for granted or advantage of God's mercy and grace here. I actually just preached along those lines in the Sunday school hour to the teenagers. But if what I have just described for you is how you view your Christian experience, where if if you are not perfect in a given week over a given sin or stronghold, you're a failure. I've got news for you. You're going to be down on yourself a lot. Cessation from sin happens when? When does it happen? When we die. When we get to heaven. That is not sanctification. That is glorification. Okay. Right now, as Christians, we are still here on earth and we will still struggle with our sin nature. Yes, take your sin seriously. Okay, I am not preaching to not take your sin seriously. But but in taking your sin seriously, be the just man who gets back up when he falls time and time again. You are not a failure if you fall. You are a failure if and when you refuse to get back up after you fall. Peter, do you love me more than these? Christ deserves your supreme devotion. Not if, when you fail Him. Simply get up by His strength and go back to the basics of what you've known your entire life as a Christian by living as He is called with the help of His Spirit. Man is weak and powerless to do this on his own. And yet, because our worthy God enables us, we can and we must love and live for Him in spite of our flaws and our failures. You must live for Christ because He deserves your supreme devotion. Next, you must live for Christ because you are His plan to build His church. Verses 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17, the same question is posed to Peter as was before, but a slight variation in response comes, however, here. When Christ tells Peter to prove his love by way of instead of feeding lambs, this time he tells him to feed sheep, rather than the lamb reference in verse 15. Peter was not only to seek after and encourage young as well as eventual believers, those who would become Christians one day, he was also called to strengthen and disciple mature believers as well. Lambs. I say this to, to our teenagers all the time, and I'll continue to do so for as long as I'm their youth pastor. But it applies to the entire congregation as well, and it's this. You, each and every one of you, are vitally 
important to the health of Trinity Baptist Church. You are. You are not the past of this church. You are not the future of this church. If you are saved, and if you are living and breathing, you are the church. And so when you choose to sin, and when you fail to lead or neglect to gather, we as a church hurt because of those things. On the other hand, when you live in consistent victory over your sin, and when you assume leadership roles within this congregation, and when you willingly and consistently gather together with God's people, we as a church are strengthened and better equipped to accomplish our God-given goal of pointing others to Christ as a result of those things. How was Peter worthy of feeding lambs, much less sheep, in light of his failures? How was he to lead mature believers to become more like Jesus? And yet when we come to John 21, we read that that is exactly what Christ is calling him to do. I want to tell you, I have been so encouraged as a youth pastor here this summer by the involvement of so many of you, including many of our teenagers, in several of our different outreach efforts. I have met. Um, thinking particularly of our vacation Bible school that ended a, a couple of weeks ago now. When you choose to partner together with us in those ways, you are living out this passage. Practically, you're doing that by, by strengthening the body of Christ through those efforts. And so when we get up here in the pulpit and during the announcement time, we say, hey, come join us in this or that. Hang door hangers. Um, invite friends. Get involved. We aren't just doing those things because our desire is to somehow have and create a, a large group of people for us to be able to point back towards and somehow have um, some level of human pride over having accomplished that, right? That, that's not the goal for those things. We're saying that, that because we, we truly believe that if God can get a hold of your heart in, in this area, and if he can knit it to a local body of believers, it will serve you for the rest of your life in all areas of your life. It will. And, and I'm not naive. I recognize that what I've just outlined for you in America in 2022 is not the popular thing, okay? It's not. In fact, not only is Christianity and local church gathering not the popular thing, even within Christianity and local church gathering, sometimes our particular version of Christianity is not the popular thing. But whether it's this church, Trinity Baptist Church, or another church across town, or another church in another state, or across the world, I know this. It has been God's plan for believers the world over, from the day of Pentecost until today, for you to be involved in those types of things. It's his plan. And you don't have to be perfect to be involved in these efforts. You don't. Trust me, none of us are. We wouldn't have those types of things if it required us to be perfect. So the question is, what's at risk when I choose to not be involved in church? When I choose not to do those things, is it the church itself? 
Well, Matthew 16, 18 answers that clearly. Christ says, I will build my church, and if you know the end of that phrase, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? The church is not at risk. What's at risk is your own spiritual growth in the church. And, and trust me, we as a pastoral staff, we're, we're not taking attendance okay, in these things. The heart of these things is a desire to cultivate within you a love for God and a love for His people. You will, you will find your sense of identity and your sense of community somewhere. And based on, on God's word, we want at least a large part of that, a majority of that, to be here. We truly desire to put you in the best position possible for you to find your sense of identity in Christ and your sense of community within his people. Speaking of the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts 2, and we won't turn there, but in Acts 2 it is Peter who on the day of Pentecost preaches, and about 3,000 souls are added to the church under the sound of that one message And it marks the beginnings of the New Testament church like we're gathered in today as we know it. How? Why? Well, it wasn't about Peter. And it certainly wasn't through Peter. Remember, God God chooses to use sinful and broken humanity to accomplish his greatest purposes. And that is you. He has no plan B. Someone put it this way when reflecting on this truth. It's amazing God ever gets anything accomplished at all. Be a leader. This is not age specific, by the way. Why? Because if you are an example of the believers in word and in conduct, you could be a child and more of a leader than an adult who isn't those things. 1 Timothy 4.12 Notice at the end of verse 17, Peter Peter points to the omniscience of Christ as the reason as to why he ought to know the answer to the question he is posing. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Do you hear the almost desperation in his voice here? It says he was grieved. Peter is no longer merely pointing to his prior relationship with Christ and experiences with Christ but rather Christ's deity itself, the almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe is looking down on us this morning. And if you are his child, he chooses you and he chooses me to carry out his purpose of drawing others to himself even today. Not if, but when you fail him, simply get back up and do exactly that. He has no other design. Man is weak and powerless on his, on his own. Because your worthy God enables you, you can and you must love and live for Him in spite of your flaws and your failures. You must live for Christ because He deserves your supreme devotion. You must live for Christ because you are His plan to build His church. And finally, you must live for Christ because even in death, God is glorified by those who do so. Verses 18 and 19. Christ gives Peter here in verses 18 and 19 a prophetic glimpse into Peter's own death itself. Here, And at the conclusion of that, he recommissions him into a life of service 
and following him. And I'll just comment on this briefly for the sake of time. But verses 18 and 19 speak to the means or, or the way that Peter is going to die. He calls it the stretching forth of his hands. That, that is a reference to crucifixion. And tradition tells us, if you know anything about Peter's specific crucifixion, Peter was persecuted for the proclamation of the message of the gospel. And at the end of his life, like Christ said, he, he would be crucified. But when the time came for him to be crucified, he did not consider himself worthy to die in a manner identical to Christ. So when he stretched forth his hands or when he was crucified, he requested actually to be hung upside down. Peter, like Paul, understood that this body, this temporal vessel that we are living in right now, it mattered little compared to the spiritual and the eternal things that awaited above. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. That's Paul. And, and by Peter's death itself, according to verse 19, he glorified God. Signifying by what death he should glorify God. Notice that Christ's recommissioning echoes the beginning of their, their ministry together ne nearly three years prior. At the end of the verse, when he and his brother Andrew, quite literally, I referenced this earlier, they left the family business to follow Christ. Follow me, Christ says. I have one final illustration of this, and with this we'll close. This is an excerpt from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Perhaps you've read that. It's chapter number two, the first persecution under Nero, A.D. 67. The first persecution of the church took place in the year 67 under Nero, the sixth emperor of Rome. This monarch reigned for the space of five years with tolerable credit to himself, but then he gave way to the greatest extravagancy of temper and to the most atrocious barbarities. Nero was not a good man, not a good emperor. Among other diabolical whims, he ordered that the city of Rome should be set on fire, which order was executed by his guards, his officers, and his servants. And when the imperial city was in flames, he went up to the tower of the Maccans and he played upon his harp, he sung the song of the burning of Troy, and he openly declared that he wished the ruin of all things before his death. Besides the noble pile called the circus, many other palaces and houses were consumed. A lot of things were destroyed in Rome at that time. Several thousand perished within the flames. Others were smothered in smoke or buried beneath the, ru the ruins. And this dreadful conflagration continued for nine days when Nero finding that his conduct was greatly blamed and a severe odium cast upon him, determined to lay the whole upon the Christians. What did that just say? He blamed the Christians for what he had actually done in burning of, of the city of Rome. He blamed the whole upon the Christians at once to excuse himself and to have an opportunity of glutting his sight with new cruelties. This was the first occasion of such persecution. And the barbarities exercised on the Christians were such as even excited the commiseration of the Romans themselves. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could not design. In particular, he had some sewn up in skins of wild beasts 
and then worried by dogs until they expired, and others dressed in shirts made stiff with wax fixed to axle trees. He made them human torches, is what this is describing. He set them on fire to light his gardens in order to illuminate them. This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire, but it rather increased and then diminished the spirit of Christianity. Nero stomped on Christianity, and what did Christianity do? It scattered. It went from Rome all throughout the world. In the course of it, listen to this, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. Do you think Peter got it here in this passage? I do. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit today. Recognize that this life of progressive sanctification is just that. It's progressive. Because your worthy God enables you, you can and you must love and live for Him in spite of your flaws and in spite of your failures. You must live for Christ because He deserves your supreme devotion. You must live for Christ because you, you are His plan to build His church. And you must live for Christ because even in death, God is glorified by those who do so. Praise God for using broken things like Peter and like me and like you in spite of our flaws and our failures today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the fact that you do look down and you see sinful, broken humanity. And in spite of us, you use us. I pray that we would, as we've been encouraged this morning, that we would look to you for the means of accomplishing anything real and spiritual and meaningful within our lives, and that we would uh, allow you to work in and through us, even when we fall. I pray that we would be the just man who gets back up. Help us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Turn to 491. 491.